Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church, and I'm glad you're taking the time to listen to the sermon that I'm about to preach to you from Genesis chapter 21. It's April 24th, 2020, and I hope you're blessed and encouraged by what you hear. So much of our lives depends on promises. Promises not only made, but promises kept. In fact, when I think about some of the most extraordinary stories of promises, of heroism and triumph being told and retold, I think about stories like soldiers not wanting to leave a fellow soldier behind on the battlefield. Or I think about a mother searching unceasingly for a lost child until she finds her. Those are all stories about people doing incredible things to keep their promises. But you know, our everyday lives involve promises being kept as well, and they're just as important. In fact, marriages are based on the promises that are made on the wedding day, and marriage is every day. Friendships stand the test of time when promises are kept, whether they've been spoken or unspoken. Perhaps it's the importance of promises which makes the Bible such a gripping book. The Bible is the story of God keeping his promises and protecting his people since really the very first days of creation until, until now. In today's sermon, we're going to see a turning point in the unfolding story of this promise-keeping God and his chosen people. We're in the book of Genesis, but before we turn there, we need to turn to God and we need to ask him to speak to us through his word by the power of his spirit. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to make promises to us, promises of blessing, promises of protection, promises of a future and an inheritance. And all of those are ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not one of your promises has ever failed, Lord, because you are capable of doing anything you want and you're faithful to your word. You never lie. Lord, help us see more clearly who you are and hear your words to us today in this passage of scripture through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I hope that you've seen as we've been making our way through Genesis that it's not so much the story of amazing people, but the story of Genesis is a, the story of an amazingly good God. We know he's good because he's created the heavens and the earth and called them very good in those first few chapters of Genesis. But we also see that he's good because he's made promises to mankind. We're in the section of Genesis that's following along with the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham grew up worshiping the moon god in the east, but was called away from his homeland by God, the God who made everything. The Lord, as the author of Genesis often calls him, has promised to make Abraham into a great nation, give him land for his descendants to live in, to curse those who curse him, to bless Abraham, and incredibly so, to bless all the families of the earth through him. Now we've seen partial fulfillment of these promises. Abraham has grown rich, and he's been protected from the enemy nations around him. But Sarah, his wife, 
has not been able to have a child. She is barren. He and his wife are very old now at this point in the story, and he still doesn't have a son by Sarah. And he is a nomad living in other people's land. No children, no land of his own. And if the Lord is going to keep his promises, there has to be some kind of promise, there, a progress. There has to be some kind of fulfillment coming. It's been 25 years now at this point in the story where we're at since God had made those promises to Abraham. But one thing the Bible reveals about God over and over and over again is that his big promises oftentimes are fulfilled slowly over long periods of time. Yet every once in a while, there is a major event where God demonstrates that he hasn't forgotten his promises and that he's still in the business of keeping them. What happens in chapter 21 is one of those major events. In fact, it's a series of events, really, that prove that God always keeps his promises and protects his people. That's really the main idea that's woven throughout this chapter that we're looking at, chapter 21. God always keeps his promises and he protects his people. Let's begin by reading the first section there in chapter 21. Turn with me in your Bibles, Genesis, first book in the Bible, to chapter 21. And we're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 21 to start with. Chapter 21 in Genesis, verses 1 through 21. Follow along with me as I read. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the son grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. 
And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We see both aspects of that main idea that I just described to you before reading in this section of chapter 21. We could summarize it even more briefly. God's promises are kept and his people are protected. That's actually going to be the theme, not only in this section, but the verses that follow as well. So we could call this part one of promises kept and people protected. Now there are all kinds of situations described in this first section that they really take us on an emotional roller coaster ride. First, there's incredible joy in verses one through seven. Isaac, the son promised to Abraham, born through Sarah, arrives. It's a miracle birth, a baby born to a woman in her 90s. God had promised a multitude of descendants, but you have to start with at least one. <laughs> and so in chapter 15, the Lord promised Abraham, your very own son shall be your heir. And then 13 year, years later in chapter 17, there still wasn't a child born through Sarah, but God promised again and drove home the point even more strongly. In chapter 17, verse 16, the Lord said, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And God even gave them a name for this child that was yet as, as yet unborn. His name was to be Isaac, or he laughs. And of course, that was his name because Abraham and Sarah were laughing at the idea that people their age could bring a child into the world. Then the Lord promised Isaac within a year in chapter 18. And now here in chapter 21, it's happened. Isaac is here. God is delivered on the promise of a miracle baby boy. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. Moses repeats himself over and over again, and he's driving home the point that God had kept his promise. In verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And then again, in verse 2, he's repeating himself, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. The author wants us to have no doubt that God has kept his promise. The son was born to Sarah, not anyone else. And the son was Abraham's son, not any other father. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle because they were so old. Well, then we find that Abraham is obedient to the Lord. 
After the birth, he names him Isaac as God had told them to, and he circumcises him like he was instructed to do back in chapter 17. There, of course, is inexpressible joy in this household, and Sarah, who once laughed in disbelief at the idea that she could bear a child in her old age, now says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. I mean, this This miracle baby boy promised beforehand reminds us, of course, of another, even greater miracle baby boy that God had promised in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the book of Isaiah is quoted in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. And Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, where God promises, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, Isaac was the son given by God who would be the beginning of a multitude promised to Abraham. His descendants would form a great nation, Israel. But the miracle son given to the Virgin Mary 2,000 years later would not just form a nation. He will rule a nation. Isaiah 9 verse 6 goes on to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus was the miracle baby born in fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, including the promises made to Abraham. In Isaac, God gave Abraham a son at just the right time. And likewise, in Jesus, God gave us his own promised son. It says in the New Testament, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, a miracle baby, not just for one man, but for all men. Jesus came to save people from their sin and to rule the kingdom of God. Since Genesis chapter 3 until today, in fact, all people have walked in sin and disobedience to God, their Creator. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is made to find their fulfillment in worshiping Him. But everyone hasn't done that. In fact, no one has done that. We've all gone astray. We've all rebelled against that good and loving God who made us and made everything else that is And so because of our sin and rebellion, we all deserve the judgment of our good God. Eternal wrath is what we deserve, not eternal glory and fulfillment, which is what we long for and what we were made for originally. But God promised to reverse the curse, to defeat death, to redirect His wrath. His means to keep that promise? Jesus. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Son of the Father sent into the world. He only walked in obedience. He never rebelled. And when He rode into Jerusalem, He should have been crowned. But instead, He was crucified. As He hung on the cross, He took the wrath of the Father against sin, though He had no sin. He took the wrath that we deserved. He atoned for our rebellion. And he rose from the grave, proving his victory over sin and death. And now, whoever turns away from their sin and rebellion against God and trusts in King Jesus, well, Jesus has 
paid their debt in full. You know, in a sense, whenever anyone repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus, it's a miracle birth, a miracle rebirth. The miracle of spiritual rebirth or regeneration into the kingdom of King Jesus. Sarah's joy at the birth of Isaac brought laughter, but oh, how much more laughter and joy should the birth of Jesus our Savior and King bring to us, and not only that, but our own spiritual rebirth into Him. Oh, what joy, what happiness we have in Christ. You know, we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, and yet for those of us who've trusted in Christ, we know a joy that runs deeper than the fear and the sadness and the uncertainty of these times. If Paul could write from a prison cell, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice, then we can say from our homes and our apartments in the midst of a pandemic, oh Lord, we rejoice in the promises made and kept by you, our good God, who sent Jesus, miraculously born, your only beloved son, the one you sent into the world so that we could have an eternal hope. That's what we rejoice over. And it enables us to rejoice in any and every situation. Have you trusted Christ? I wonder, if you're not a Christian, are you wondering what your future holds? It may have hardship and loss in it. In fact, it may be shorter than you think. In fact, none of us knows what tomorrow holds. But with Christ, oh, my friend, you can be assured of your eternity. You can go from knowing God as judge to knowing God as your forever friend. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ today. Believe in Him. If the true story in Genesis 21 ended with verse 8 or verse 7, then we could continue imagining the joy that Sarah felt at the birth of Isaac. And we might as well, in some ways, just end this sermon. But the story continues, and it does turn dark and desperate, in fact. Because when Isaac would have been about three years old, he would have been weaned from his mother's milk. And we see that it was at a celebration for his weaning that Sarah spotted Hagar's son, Ishmael, laughing, mocking Isaac. Now, Ishmael's not named here. We would have had to read the chapters prior to this to know that the son of Hagar was Ishmael. Ishmael would have been about 17 years old at this point. And the laugh of Ishmael here isn't the laughing which Sarah imagined when Isaac was first born. The laugh of Ishmael here is a mocking laugh. In fact, Galatians 4.29, Paul says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac here in Genesis 21. Up until then, in the story, Ishmael would have been the first in line to be the heir of all that Abraham had, which was a lot. <laughs> and now Abraham had this miracle son, and Ishmael would have been then a distant second in line in, as inheritor. And so Sarah, in her jealousy, tells Abraham that he must cast the slave woman and her son out of the house. And of course, Abraham is terribly upset. He loved his son, Ishmael, despite the fact that Ishmael had been born from a sinful and disobedient decision back in chapter 16. But surprisingly, 
God confirms that Abraham should do what Sarah demands. He reassured Abraham that he would make a nation from this boy. He speaks to Abraham and says, do what Sarah says. In fact, in chapter 17, God had promised that 12 princes would come from Ishmael. But God is clear, Isaac is the son. Isaac is the son with whom God would establish his covenant. And so Abraham, I'm sure tormented in his spirit, rose early the next morning and sent Hagar and her son away into the wilderness. Can you imagine the pain in Abraham's heart? Can you imagine what it took to obey God, to actually do what Abraham did that morning? Perhaps it was preparation for the test that he would face in the next chapter. But if you're like me, you're wondering, how could God do this? I mean, even with the promises of God, this this is a hard episode to understand. What I want to suggest to you is that in sending Hagar and her son away, God was working both protection for Isaac and eventual blessing for Ishmael. He was working both protection for Isaac and eventual blessing for Ishmael. You see, in chapter 16, God had told Hagar that Ishmael would be born to her and that he would be, quote, a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And of course, now a rival half-brother has been born who's younger than him, but he's the son, Isaac is the son who will inherit. And of course, there would be rivalry, there would be competition, And we see that hinted at, of course, in Ishmael's mocking of Isaac. And given the situation then, it was good. It was good for both of them, as hard as that parting was. The New Testament scripture reading that was suggested for this sermon was Galatians 4, 22 through 31. And in that famous passage, Paul contrasts Sarah and her son Isaac with Hagar and her son Ishmael. Now in that passage and in that book of the New Testament, Paul was writing to the Galatian church because the Galatian church was being lured away by false teaching of a group of people called the Judaizers who were teaching that the church, teaching the church that in order to be saved, they must put their faith and trust in Jesus and be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. That's what they had to do, all of that, in order to be saved. And Paul wanted them to know that that was not the way to be saved, not to add anything to faith in Jesus as the way of salvation. Paul goes on to ask them, or actually asks them before 4, 22 through 31. He says, did you receive the Spirit when you believed the gospel, or did you receive the Spirit when you obeyed the law? No, he means to say. No, you received the Spirit when you trusted in Christ, when you believed the promise. Not when they tried to justify themselves or save themselves by trying to obey the Mosaic law. And so Paul, in that passage in Galatians, is looking back to Genesis 21, and he sees a lesson to be learned in the difference between the two wives of Abraham and their sons. Those two sets of wives and sons related to the two ways of thinking about salvation. Isaac was the son of promise. 
He was born through a miracle birth. They couldn't make it happen on their own, Abraham and Sarah. But Ishmael was born out of Abraham and Sarah's scheming and disobedience. And so thinking that you could earn your way into salvation was Paul was describing and saying, like Hagar and Ishmael, receiving salvation as a free gift, on the other hand, by believing in the promise of God given in the gospel was like Sarah and her son Isaac. Ishmael was born through Abraham and Sarah's own plan and work. Isaac was born through God's promise. And so Paul says in Galatians 4.28, Now you, brothers, you Galatian Christians, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And Paul says, just like Ishmael tried to persecute Isaac, the Judaizers are trying to persecute you who have received salvation simply by believing the promises of the gospel. The salvation of God has come through the promise, the promise of the gospel. The scriptures are clear about that. Just like Isaac came by Abraham and Sarah simply believing the promise of God and waiting, waiting on God to deliver on his promise. Salvation comes completely from God. None of our work contributes to our salvation. Romans 5 describes salvation as a free gift. It's the promise of a free gift. It simply has to be received. Are you trying to work your way to God? Are you trying to work your way into His good favor? Listen, friend, it won't work. You cannot do it, in fact. You must simply trust in the promise that God makes to save those who repent and trust in Christ. And now, even though Ishmael represents salvation by works in Galatians, we see an example of how God helps the helpless in the next scene with Ishmael, in fact. Beginning in verse 15, we see that Ishmael and Hagar are wandering in the wilderness on the edge of death. They have no water. But God has made promises to Ishmael. And he hasn't forgotten. God does not forget. God keeps his promises. There in the wilderness, we see God's kindness and promise keeping with Ishmael. It's in verses 15 through 21. Just like in chapter 16 with Hagar, pregnant with Ishmael, escaped from Sarah into the wilderness. Here she is again. She's in the wilderness, but this time with her son. And it was there that she had encountered the Lord, the Lord that she had called back in chapter 16, the God who sees me, the God of seeing. Does he still see her or is she forsaken? Well, their water is gone and both Hagar and her son are dying of thirst. Evidently, the boy around 17 years old has collapsed from dehydration. And in verse 17, God hears not so much the voice of Hagar, but he hears the voice of the boy. Because Ishmael means God hears. There's reassurance from the angel of the Lord, a promise to make Ishmael into a great nation. And God opens Hagar's eyes to find a well of water which saves both of their lives. And then in verses 20 and 21, we see that God indeed is keeping his promise to Hagar and her son. The boy grows into a skillful man, and Hagar gets a wife for him. 
Of course, here we see hints of success and strength in Ishmael. And family, the fact that he gets a wife promises family and descendants that will come from God's hand of blessing. All of these, of course, were formally promised by God, and now God is keeping his promises to Ishmael. Did you notice when and how God helped Ishmael, when he could not help himself, when he cried out in desperation, when he was on the verge of death? When you see that you will not be able to be good enough on your own to be accepted by God, when you see that your sin condemns you and you have no hope, when you realize this and you cry out to God for His mercy, that describes what it's like to become a Christian. It may not be loud. It may not be a literal cry, but it will be a cry of your heart. Oh, Lord, save me. Have mercy on me through Christ. Cry out to this God. Cry out to this God for mercy. Call on Jesus to come near and fill your thirsty soul with His righteousness. Don't be afraid. He delights to save those who know they're lost. Now, after these emotional scenes of exuberant joy and then desperation and rescue, the scene shifts dramatically. But the lessons that we learned here in this section, verses 1 through 21, that God keeps His promises and He protects His people, we see again in the next section as well. And so we need to read that. Beginning with verse 22. Let's read to the end of the chapter. 22 to 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. And so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Well, in a completely different setting and through different means, again, we see that God is keeping His promises and He's protecting His people. Abraham, of course, still lived in the land of Gerar where Abimelech was king. And Abimelech 
recognizes that God is blessing Abraham. Abraham's gaining wealth. He's gaining strength. All the way back in chapter 14 of Genesis, we know that Abraham had a strong army of 318 trained men. And of course, by now, his army must be much, much stronger. Now, Abimelech remembers the deception that Abraham used on him in chapter 20 when he lied about Sarah being his sister. And that almost led to Abimelech's destruction. If it had not been for God warning Abimelech in a dream, Abimelech would have been destroyed in order to protect Sarah. Now, with that as background, Abimelech approaches Abraham with his army commander. He's concerned about Abraham's strength in the land. And his proposition is simple. It's Put in simple terms, he's saying basically, listen, Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Promise to me that you're going to deal with me honestly. Abimelech understands that if Abraham wanted to hurt him and his family or his nation, he could do it. But as we've seen in some past chapters, Abraham seems to be learning from his mistakes. And so he accepts and he makes an oath. He pledges to always tell the truth with Abimelech. He says in verse 24, you can look there with me, I will swear. And then shortly after that, Abraham brings a complaint to Abimelech. There's a well of water which Abraham had dug, but which Abimelech's servants had claimed as their own. And you and I may think, how important is a well of water? But if you have herds of livestock and you live in the Middle East, a well of water is like a gold mine. And so Abimelech pleads ignorance, to which Abraham responds by offering sheep and oxen in order for them to make a covenant together. You remember how covenants were officially sanctioned and made official. All the way back from chapter 15, we learned that. Animals were sacrificed, they were cut in half, and they were laid across from one another, and the covenanting parties would walk between the animal carcasses. It's not described here, but that's probably what happened between Abraham and Abimelech with these sheep and oxen. And then, after they covenanted, in a gesture much like what Abimelech did in chapter 20 to prove that he had not defiled Sarah, Abraham offers to Abimelech seven lambs as a gift, proving that he's telling the truth that he dug this well of water. Now, there's a play on words here that we don't see in the English. The word for seven in Hebrew, the seven ewe lambs, sounds just like the word for swear, which we saw just in the verses above that. Just like Abraham had sworn to tell the truth. So, seven and swear. And then look at verse 30 with me. This is what Abraham says. He said, These seven you lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And so that place was called Beersheba, the well of seven, or the well of the oath. This is the first covenant that's recorded in Genesis between two men. It would have been very common in the Middle East, but this is the first one that's recorded for us in the book of Genesis between two men. And it's through this human covenant that Abraham finally acquires the property rights 
to a piece of property in the promised land. Up until now, he had not really owned any of it himself. He was a sojourner there. He was a visitor. But now, Abraham has a foothold in the land. Do you see how God has just given Abraham a sort of a down payment on the promise that his descendants will one day own all of the promised land? Through this covenant that he's made with Abimelech, God is working to begin keeping his promise of giving the land to Abraham's descendants. It's not much, but it's a start. Just like Isaac isn't a multitude, but it's a start. And Abraham recognizes the hand of God working. In fact, he plants a tamarisk tree there. It's as if he's planting the family flag. It's the family flag of Abraham. And he's saying, in essence, this is the beginning. This land, this well is ours. And God will one day give us the rest of it too. As members of Covenant Hope Church, we have entered into a covenant with one another as well. And it's through that church covenant that God is oftentimes working to bless us and to keep His promises to us. We, we promise to watch over one another's lives in our church covenant, to stand guard and, and to take notice when someone is struggling, to go to them and to help. When we make those promises that are in the church covenant, they're serious, they're important. And then when one of us acts on the covenant and reaches out to a fellow member to encourage them or warn them, God is working through that person to person promise, and He's fulfilling His promises to us. We're blessed. We're built up. We're guarded. We're protected. We're provided for. All through that church covenant, the church covenant that God is working through. Or maybe... It's the covenant promise that we make to pray for ourselves and others, which is about one of the only things that we can do right now in the midst of this pandemic. God responds to our prayers. He answers our prayers for each other. That's one of the ways that He sovereignly accomplishes His purposes. Members who have lost a family member are comforted when we pray for them. Members who are wandering from fellowship are drawn back in when we pray for them. Members become pregnant when we pray for them. Members are, uh, are able to adopt children when we pray for them. Members receive jobs when they didn't have one before when we pray for them. All of this happens through our prayers for one another because of our covenant promises to pray. Take a moment this week to read over the church covenant and remember how God fulfills His promises to us through our covenant with one another. If you'll think about it, Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that, look at the birds of the field. God takes care of them. And how does He do it? He does it through natural means. Well, God has established the church and when we live covenanted lives with one another and we fulfill that covenant, God takes care of our needs. He fulfills His promises to us. Did you notice the difference in how God worked to keep His promises and protect His people in the first part of the chapter 
and the second part of the chapter? God worked miraculously causing Isaac to be born. And then God worked miraculously rescuing Ishmael and Hagar through the angel's guidance. But then in the second scene with Abimelech and Abraham, God worked through the ordinary agreements between two wealthy kings. Abraham was guaranteed some protection and security through the covenant that they made. And Abraham acquired some of the land through the covenant as well. In both cases, God was keeping his covenant promises of descendants for Abraham and the land for his children and protection going forward as well. And that's not to mention that both Ishmael and Abimelech represent the beginnings of God blessing the families of the whole earth through Abraham. God works through miracles and God works through ordinary means as well. God is sovereign in an impossible pregnancy and a simple agreement between neighboring kings. And God is working out His promises to you and I through everything in our lives as well. He does the impossible and He does the ordinary. And in all of it, all of those things, God is keeping His promises to us. Can you believe that God would do that for you and I? that he would keep his promises each and every day to us? Can you believe that after all our sin and rebellion against this good and merciful God, that he would work for our good in all things? Through the miracle of being born again into Christ, through the ordinary covenanted relationships that we have with one another in the local church? God is working through all of this. Our God is amazing. Our God keeps His promises and protects His people. Even when times are hard and trials come, God is at work for our good. Sometimes we feel like we need a miracle. Maybe God will provide it. He can do anything, but maybe He's working for your good in the ordinary, in that friend who calls you at just the right time, or even through someone who's not a believer who blesses you in some way, God can do anything through His people and for His people. Sometimes people say when they really want to make an impression, they say, mark my words to say, remember what I said, and you can count on it being true. But I want you to not mark my words. I want you to mark God's words. Romans 8 Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, God was working to keep His promises and protect His people, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, here in chapter 21. But we are His people too, through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the miracle child born of a virgin, sent from the Father to guarantee and fulfill all the promises of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is Jesus. All the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And you know what? God is not done yet. Christ has come. The answer to all the promises lived he lived, he died, he rose again. 
The gospel has been preached in His name now for 2,000 years, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation have come in and will come into His glorious kingdom. But Jesus is coming back. That's His promise to us. His promise to return, to take us to be with Him. And when He does, mark His words, all the promises will be completely and finally fulfilled. We'll be a part of the heavenly nation that God has redeemed, and we will have a land of our own, the new heavens and the new earth, and we will dwell in complete safety and security. No sin, no death, only joy, only blessing. We have to consider, of course, these last two verses. Look there with me. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham worshiped. He could see the God of all time and space, the everlasting God, keeping his promises and protecting his covenant people. Worship is the only right response when we see God keep his promises. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. All of them are ours in Christ. And if God is keeping His promises to us in the miraculous and the everyday and the ordinary, doesn't He deserve our worship every day? And if He's the everlasting God, won't He deserve our worship forever and ever? Oh, brothers and sisters, He does deserve our worship every day. And we will worship Him forever. Let's worship Him by praying to Him now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You sent the miracle child, Your only Son, Jesus, into the world, that He took on flesh, that He lived the righteous life that we haven't and couldn't. And he died in our place, taking the punishment for our sin and atoning for our rebellion. And we praise you that you raised him by the power of the Spirit. And Lord, when we look to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we see that Jesus is the yes to all your promises, that Jesus is the final and complete and unassailable protection that we long for in this life and in the next. We praise you for Jesus. Help us to worship him every day and forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.